Father, we thank you again for the blessing that we have just to spend time in worship and to open up the scriptures. We praise you for the gift of life and the gift of new life. We praise you for creation and recreation and redemption. We thank you for the gift of your son and his life and his ministry and his death and resurrection and ascension. We praise you for the gift of the Spirit poured out through your Son. And the Spirit, we invite now to be in this place and at this time to speak to us and to move in us. That we might be transformed by your love and by the call to follow you and in following you find life. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So Wednesday... I was at a school, middle school, preaching a sermon. Uh, Hopefully this doesn't surprise you, but I don't only just preach here, okay? I'm not exclusive. There's not a a non-compete closure in my my agreement here at the church. But I do preach here more than I preach other places. Um, But usually, you know, on a week or or a different day, you know, I might be caught preaching somewhere else. I was at this middle school preaching and I was preaching about, you could probably guess it, the Sermon on the Mount. This is my kind of shtick for the few months, right? You kind of go with the same thing. And the chaplain of the school had seen me re-preach the Sermon on the Mount, um, like I've done here as well, and had liked it, and had asked if I would do it uh, for them, the, their students. And uh, I was worried about it, because I was worried that the Sermon on the Mount that he had seen me do, re-preach, was in an adult setting, and that's pretty much all the times that I'd done it. And I was worried that the middle school students would not get much out of it, that it would be a flop, that it would be really boring and irrelevant to their lives. And if there's one thing about me, is that I care a whole lot about what middle schoolers think about me. So I have a reputation and credibility on the line here. I've got dozens of, of, of you know, gold star sermons, right, for just things like this, and you pull them out, and you got a cute story, and a couple jokes, and a good point, and some motivational ending, um, and I want to do one of that, and I'm really worried that, you know, I have 400 middle schoolers looking at me like, what in the world are we doing? What is this? Um, and and as we've talked about, as we preach to the Sermon on the Mount, and it's the time that the Sunday I re-preached it here at the church, um, Something happens, at least for me, every time that I hear it or, or re-preach it from beginning and end, instead of slicing it up into a piece, something new stands out to me. And something new kind of shocks me, and something new kind of gets into my mind. And, and I, was, I was preaching it, I was, I was shocked by two things to this middle school crowd. One, by how relevant it is to middle schoolers. Um, so I'd contextualized it, working with a couple different translations, and done my best to put it in middle school ease. Uh, and obviously, there's some stuff that really doesn't translate. The adultery stuff, I think, goes over them over their head. Um, but so contextualized again, Jesus says, if you call your brother fool, you're not liable to the flames of hell. And so there's a point where I'm looking at these middle schoolers, and I say. If you call the people around you an idiot, you're standing on the brink of hellfire. And you can hear stuck in, right? I mean, these are middle schoolers who all have probably called someone an idiot that morning. And it's not just a cute, funny pastor saying this. This is, this is he's, he's reading from Jesus here. Uh, and then 
The second thing that, that stood out to me beyond that, there's a lot of relevant material, even for, for middle schoolers, was how this sermon ends. Um, so in particular, I pay a lot more attention to um, how sermons are constructed. You know, very important to a sermon, the art of giving a sermon is the beginning and the end. If you have a good beginning, you can hook people in, um, you can get them emotionally attached, you can get their attention. If you have a good ending, you can make it last. Okay. In fact, you can even make up for a bad sermon if you kill the ending if, with a good story and a good point or something like that. Um, and if I'm usually in a context like this where I'm being paid money to speak to a group of students, I'm, again, usually using one of these handful of sermons that I've preached already dozens if not hundreds of times, and I know how it works, right? And I know how I'm going to end, and they're going to leave motivated and inspired and learning something new that they didn't know before. And it's not a guessing game, right? I'm not worried about it. And I get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm shocked by how hardcore and abrupt it ends. To the point that I'm working this through in my mind as I'm, I'm talking, and I'm considering changing how it ends. Because in my mind, I'm going, I don't know if I can end a sermon that way, especially to children. So this is how the last couple of sentences read in the middle school ease version that I was, I was performing that day. If, and it's, like, it's this, and then let's pray, and I walk off the stage, right? Like I'm like, should I add something? Should I just twist this a little bit? Does that, am I going to hell if I change the Sermon on the Mount? If you just use my words in Bible studies and don't work them into your life, you're a stupid person who built stupid houses on sandy beaches. When storms roll in and the waves come, you and the house will collapse like a house of cards. Let's pray together. <laughs> right? I mean, I would never ever think to end a sermon like that. I mean, it's very abrupt. That's very harsh. I might end a sermon kind of like that with adults if it just wasn't very well thought out and I didn't know how to land the plane, you know, and I was like, we just got to finish this because it's already past lunchtime. Now, as we've been preaching the Sermon on the Mount, we're now coming to that similar point in the Sermon on the Mount. We're done with Jesus teaching us in the Sermon on the Mount. We're done with him giving us his instructions for how he wants the disciples to live, for what it means in real life, in our moral practice, to follow him, to be a part of his kingdom. And we are now left with the ending of the Sermon on the Mount, which is just a conclusion. It's three warnings, three metaphors that Jesus will give us. And we'll spend three sermons ending the Sermon on the Mount by looking at them each. The first metaphor, the one we'll look at today, is about a gate and about a way or a path. Then there'll be a metaphor and a warning about a tree and its fruit. And there'll be a metaphor or warning about a house and a wise builder and a foolish builder. So if you have your Bible, open up with me to Matthew chapter 7. And we'll look at the first of these three warnings that Jesus concludes his sermon with. This is the shortest of all three, just two verses. We have an English idiom that comes from these verses. So if someone says he's really walking in the straight and narrow way, that's from this passage here. It means they're 
right? They've cleaned up their life. They're doing well. Um, Jesus has just given us the prayer passage, right? The golden rule. Before that, two full chapters of teaching. And now he says this. He gives us a command in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. A narrow gate with a hard path that leads to life. And a wide gate with an easy path that leads to destruction. This is Jesus here drawing a line in the sand. This is Jesus here at the conclusion of the sermon saying, you need to choose what you're going to do. There's two options for you. There's two gates. There's two paths you can take in response to my sermon. And one will lead you to life, the life that I want you to have. But it's going to involve you making a very difficult choice and you walking on a very difficult path. Or you can go with the flow, go with the crowd, respond inappropriately, let these words pass through your ears and through your hearts, and it'll be easy, and you'll have lots of people around you, but it'll end in destruction. He's using a, a, a metaphor here, the gate, right? The gate and the path, which would have been very common, and even, you know, we can understand this. Even today, if you go to Jerusalem, you still have old Jerusalem city walls, and you'll find gates there, and some of them are, are wider, and you can kind of go through with a group, or you can have a car go through it, and some of the gates are narrow, and really only one person can get through that at a time, or one or two persons can get through that at a time, and the people that Jesus is talking to would have been very familiar with these different types of scenarios. A fancier, nicer city, right? Not as concerned with security. It might have a wide gate and then a really smooth path into the city after that gate. And then you might have another city where you have to go single file, despite the fact that you're with, you're journeying with your group of 30 friends, right? Your family is making this trek. You've got to one by one shimmy your way in through this gate. And then after that, you've got to bruise up your feet, on this hard, hard path before you finally get to the city or get to the place where you're trying to go. What is this narrow gate that Jesus is talking about? He, he says, enter by the narrow gate. He uses the word enter, this, this imperative command, enter, this, this invitation. He uses it often throughout the Gospels to refer to the kingdom of God, to refer to following him and finding the life that he's come to give to God's creation. The narrow gate and the hard path seem to be the decision to follow Christ and then the journey of discipleship that proceeds after one chooses to follow Christ. Discipleship being the process by which we learn how to act more and more Christ-like, by which we're transformed into his image, by which we learn more and more and are able more and more to live out the Sermon on the Mount and the teachings that he's given us. In a real way, this narrow gate is the Sermon on the Mount. That's the hard path. The hard path is loving one's enemies. The hard path is forgiving other people. 
The hard path is not serving money, giving away stuff and money when people ask you. The hard path is rooting out all sexual immorality, all forms of anger from inside of your heart and your mind. That's the path Jesus says is going to bruise up your knees. It's going to cut up your feet. He says there's another path, though, and there's going to be a whole lot more people that go on that path. It's the easy path. It's easy to get into, and it's a comfortable ride. Jesus draws a line says, what path are you going to follow after hearing these words? He clearly, though, doesn't want to just be kind of mean and rude and and kind of disastrous. He's offering life, right? He says, I want you to find the life at the end of this path. I want you to realize paradoxically, while it will hurt and seem harder, this is where the life is. This is where God's life is. This is where you'll find the beauty of salvation God's come to offer. This other place, it only ends in destruction. So when, when my wife and I were still dating, we went on a beach trip with her brother and, and, and her sister-in-law. And um, if you know much about me, you know I have two great loves in my life, other than my wife, um, Orca Wales. I happen to love Orca Wales. You, most of you know this. I've got shower curtains. I've got picture frames in my home office. It's ridiculous. Um, talk about it with my therapist a lot. Okay, but I've just, I love these Orca Wales. And the other thing that I love is jet skis, wave runners. They're just the best, they're, they're, they're the coolest thing ever. And I don't know if you've seen these videos, but there's this thing that happens every now and then. If someone's jet skiing in the ocean, where orca whales sometimes are spotted, there's these videos of people on jet skis with orca whales playing in the wake and coming around and playing with the person on the jet ski. And I, I once had a video like that. I think I shared it on Facebook or something, and people posted all these like horrified faces right to it. And I was like, no, I'm sharing this because this is like my dream. Like, this is the closest thing to heaven in my mind. And so we're at the beach, and again, we're not married. I think it was early stages of dating. And I go, I, I don't go to the beach without getting on a jet ski. So I go, who wants to go get on a jet ski? No one's really as excited as I am. Again, in my mind, there's, not, there's no way I'm driving back to Sugarland without getting on a jet ski here in, in the ocean and praying somehow there's an orca whale in the Gulf of Mexico. <laughs> And uh, Lindsay being, the, you know, the good-natured lady that she is and, and, and wanting to go on an adventure with me, says, oh, you know, I'll go on a jet ski. I don't particularly like it. I don't want to r- drive it or anything, but, but I'll, I'll go with you. And so in my history, in my past, you usually just kind of walk around and you find, you know, a rental place on the beach. And so we started walking. We left our brother and sister-in-law and we couldn't find a rental place. And we're walking and walking. And pretty soon... Um, my advice to not take our shoes seemed like horrible advice because the sand's getting really hot uh, and our phone starts to die and we have no instructions anymore. And after about a 45 minutes of walking, um, where I'm sure Lindsay's retracking, backtracking our whole entire relationship, um, my first like adventure to lead her on, we find a little booth for jet skis and we walk up and so I'd like to sign up for the jet ski, and they take the money there, and they say, what you're going to do is you're just going to walk like half a mile down that way, take a left, and you'll find like a little cove, and 
so the jet skis will be there, that kind of thing. Um, and so we try to do that. Who knows what happened, if we got lost or if it was just incorrect. Um, but it took us four hours to get to the place where jet skis eventually showed up. And there was no sand, not even hot sand. We ended up on an asphalt rock road for a good two hours walking. I kid you not, the bottoms of both of our feet are bleeding. Like we're leaving bloody footprints as we're walking. And you know, I'm so excited and proud of myself with this decision. (laughs) Let's go on a jet ski. Come on, this will be fun. No, like where are the jet skis? I'll find them. It's super easy. You get there all the time. And at one point, I'm crying. Lindsay's holding us up. And we are sitting on, on the side of the road. We have no clue where we are, no way to call anybody to come pick us up. And we're, we're, we're hitchhiking. Um, and this, this, after multiple cars pass by, like way too many cars, this old couple and this beat-up pickup truck come pick us up. And we're so thankful. And they drive us down to where we're supposed to be. And, you know, I've got some cash on me still. And I'm like, you know, look, we're really thankful. We take some. Like, no, 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 no. You know, y'all just have a good time. And I leave a 20 in the, you know, the back of their back seat, hoping, you know, they'll have a good time later with that. And we get there, and we end up getting on the jet ski, and we have this, this, this great time, except that Lindsay will no longer go on jet skis with me. Um, I've lost that privilege. But when I think of a hard, a hard path, this is what comes to mind. Okay. Start walking. I think it's a good idea, right? It's a good invitation. And then this was probably the hardest thing I've ever done in terms of like walking. This was, I, I mean, I felt like third world country. Like I was being like a prisoner. I was in Guantanamo. Like someone was, I mean, we were, th- we were leaving bloody footprints. This was bad. And I'm, I'm, I'm bringing along my girlfriend of like three months. <laughs> we're getting in the car of a stranger. Six hours later, we're supposed to be back in Sugarland already. We finally come back to the, her brother and sister-in-law. And they're like, what happened? And I'm like, oh my gosh, please don't tell this story. Jesus is saying, look, it's going to be bloody. Look, you, you might fall down, but this is the gate that you need to, you need to enter. This narrow gate. There's a biblical context here. Not only is the gate, I think, related to the teachings of the sermon that are indeed very hard. I think that, um, I know that, the Bible's full of this kind of two ways or two options type ideas, passages, invitations, or or, or warnings, if you will. We read one of them in our scripture reading, Deuteronomy 30, where the Lord says, look, I've given before you two options, life and death, blessing and curse. It's pretty much this simple. Which one are you going to choose? When Jesus draws a line like this, there's a long tradition in Scripture of simplifying the choice and saying as much gray area and nuance as there can be in life, here's the line. And what are you going to do? How are you going to respond? Here's life and here's death. Which way are you going to decide to walk? There's also a psalm that stands behind this warning and a lot of warnings like it. It's interesting because we started our little psalms class together um, this past Thursday night. Um, But the very first psalm uh, in our Psalter 
contrasts the way of a wicked and the way of a righteous, and then the outcome of the person who walks the path of the righteous life and the path of the wicked life. The, the psalm also then talks about a tree that bears good fruit, being the wise man, like the second warning that we'll look at. And the psalm also talks about wisdom and talks about being known by the Lord. We'll see in the second warning, Jesus also talks about who he knows by how they lived, what kind of tree they were, and who he doesn't know. There's actually a real big argument to make that Psalm 1, the very first psalm, is kind of the literary background for these three warnings. I encourage you to maybe this week go look up and read Psalm 1 and explore it, and then come look at the, the three last warnings here at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount and see all the similarities between them. So the narrow way is, is following Jesus. It's choosing to follow him. It's choosing to receive him as our Lord, as our Savior, and choosing to walk this hard but worthy journey of discipleship. What is then the easy way? For most of, of Western interpretation, there's a long tradition of understanding the difference here as a contrast between immoral behaviors and righteous behaviors. Um, the difference being um, people who are not Christians and people who are Christians. Um, I want to disagree with that. And I want to say that the narrow gate being the Sermon on the Mount makes us, should make us think that whatever the, the easy gate is also corresponds with what's been being talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you can remember throughout the sermon, Jesus has been talking about the difference between external righteousness and true internal righteousness. So you'll say things like, you've heard it was said, don't murder people. But I tell you, don't be angry at people. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, don't lust. You've heard it said, love your neighbor. I tell you, love your enemies. The easy gate is not actually, I think, in the context of Jesus' sermon here, people who choose not to be the people of God or don't want to be the people of God, although that would definitely apply. The easy gate I think Jesus is referring to are the Pharisees, are the people who do religion but never do it internally, who never go beyond the easy kind of Grit your teeth laws that they think makes them acceptable. I think Jesus says the easy way that a lot of people will go on is this way. I haven't killed anybody. For some of you, this may be difficult, okay? And you need to come talk and we'll pray. But for most of us, this is something we can kind of grit our teeth and get through through life, right? Don't commit adultery. Maybe it's a little more difficult for us, and people make mistakes, and there's slip-ups and, and things like that. But, but that's much easier, right, than trying to root out lust from your life. If we were to translate this to our own context, we might then say the easy way, the easy gate, the path Jesus is referring to that leads to destruction is easy Christianity. It's, it's not just going off and, and living your life and, and, and being just the most immoral person you can imagine. It's being a majority Christian. 
it's being a, the type of Christian who just goes to church and who just follows kind of the basic principles of being a nice, well-to-do Western Christian and who never does the hard work of examining their heart who never does the hard work of actually conforming their entire life, their moral life, their religious and spiritual life, their communal life into the image of Christ and the virtues he's called us to practice and live out and grow into. I think that's actually the comparison, and I think that's actually a lot more scary of a choice that we have before us. I think we're left with a cultural heritage, um, and it's this. There, in, in, there's a period of time in America where a few passionate people, brilliant people, um, got together and, and, and said, you know, we need a revival in our country. And they did just indeed do that, the Great Awakening. Okay, and they'd travel from city to city and they would have these revivals. And it's still, these, there's this crumbs of this heritage that still last with us today all over the place if you're really familiar with the history. In fact, our worship service for a church historian would be considered a revivalist worship service. This did not exist before the great revivals in America. What they would do is they'd set up a big tent in a city, they'd get some really good musicians to play, because that really gets your heart going, and they get a preacher up there. Now, he usually wouldn't be as good as me, but he'd be a little more, a little more hellfire. But, but, I mean, just imagine, right? I mean, if I just got up here and talked, it's a much different interaction between us than after you hearing Michelle and Chris's beautiful voices and, and the music and the powerful words, right? I mean, that really gets you going. That gets your heart in a place to hear and receive something. That's why if you go to a, a, a church or a service that's far out of the tradition you're used to, one like this, you might find it really strange, like a Catholic mass. If you go to a Catholic service, it's not revivalistic, mainly because it was around way before these revivals were, and they felt no need to change them after the revivals. If you go to a Catholic service, they don't really cater the service to you or your preferences or your ability or non-ability to pay attention or care. They're like, this is important. It's important despite whether you're here or not here, despite whether you can pay attention or not pay attention, despite whether you care or don't care. It's not our job to try to make you emotionally invested in this. It's our job to do this. And hopefully you'll join us but it's a big, big difference. So you have this revival that takes place. And at the revival, you, you get people con- convicted of their lifestyles and scared of hell. This is largely where Christianity finds its, its kind of heaven and hell basis. Um, we, we try to go back and look at the Gospels and see that Jesus is actually much more concerned with you living in the kingdom now than he is with making a one-time decision about your eternal fate. That's something that really was cemented in this revivalist tradition. And so you, you would make this decision, and then they would pick up their tent and go on to a new city. And here's what was lacking. Discipleship. Someone to go, here's what's next, if you really want to follow Jesus. It's not just a good feeling 
one night and a ticket to get out of hell. It's a call to a narrow path that's difficult, but that leads to life. And this, I think, still stays with us in American Christianity in particular, just to speak to our context. In fact, after this great revival, it's only 100, 150 years that you've got the uh, Civil War going on. And, and we can argue about you know, all the different causes and reasons for the Civil War. Slavery was a part of it. And you have Southern pastors standing up fervently out of the Bible, arguing that slavery is biblical and that you're actually sinning by fighting against the institution of slavery. You know how that's possible? That's only possible if Christians have been made by saying a prayer to get out of hell and not being forced to think through justice and righteousness and having their moral life reimagined and reshaped and reformed. I mean, that's, otherwise, it's just not possible. And I would, I would hope and imagine you wouldn't have people getting up there arguing for the status quo of clear injustice. Because all they think is really important, right, is where you're going. And the rest is what's convenient for us. And it was working for us, and we don't want you know, the war to continue, and so we're going to preach these sermons. There's a, a, a part in Huckleberry Finn, Mark Twain, where Huckleberry hides a friend of his that's a slave. And he, he's been taught, and so he knows that by doing this, he, he's sinning. And he ends up making the choice to go to hell because he wants to save his friend. And this passage is kind of like gut-wrenching to me. I always kind of like start to tear up when I'm reading this. And I'm thinking, one, that's such a Christ-like decision even if it sent him to hell, right? Even if those were the rules, I'm sacrificing my life. I don't care what the rules are out of love. And then two, how sad is it? Mark Twain, I think actually is, is crucifying Southern Christianity in that moment at that time with their complicitness in the, the institution of slavery. And in that passage you get someone who thinks just going to church, not killing people, not being a particularly bad person, according to the rest of the other people, that's what it means to follow Jesus. But Jesus says, no, it's a, it's a narrow path that's difficult, but worth it. There's life there to be found at the end. Think about how different it would be if instead of asking people to say a sinner's prayer, to invite someone to be a Christian, you ask them to read a copy of the Sermon on the Mount and sign a contract committing themselves to try to live that life. I mean, think how differently that would shape who's in the church. It'd probably be less people. But you might have a religion that was much more pure. You might have a people that were much more committed to Jesus Here's the truth. To, to actually follow Jesus as he's presented in the Gospels and as he teaches in the Gospels means you are in the moral minority on most decisions and beliefs. Not moral minority worldwide, not moral minority in America, moral minority in Christianity. 
one of my shticks is I think we should love, other, love our enemies. And there's lots of debates and nuances about this, right? I happen to take it pretty literally. So when, when you know, there's talk about bombing another country, I'm going to say that's, as far as I have it, I think Christian stamps say let's not bomb that country. Lots of reasons. One, you're going to kill other Christians when you do that. You know, you know that, right? I mean, these are our brothers and sisters. That shouldn't even be a discussion for us. We love our country more than we are loving our, our brothers and sisters over there. And then two, Jesus told us to love our enemies. I've been called a heretic, a false preacher, faced backlash, gotten death threats. Not like real death threats, but like, you know, threats of abuse for asking Christians to love their enemies in a real way than for anything else I've ever asked Christians to do. Because it's a moral minority. To simply take a big theme of Jesus' teachings and say, maybe we should take this seriously enough that we act differently than everyone else acts automatically. To be a disciple, I think, is to be a minority and not even just a minority in the world, a minority in those who claim to be the people of God. Jesus, the context of the sermon is he's taking a group of people who claim to be the people of God, and he's saying, look, I'm here to bring God's kingdom, to bring life. And if you want to bring the life, it's more than just gritting your teeth and not murdering people. It's rooting out all of that anger. It's more than just gritting your teeth and loving the people you're supposed to love. It's being nice to the people hurting you and persecuting you. That's the narrow way. That's the line in the sand. This is the warning that Jesus gives here. This is why I think we need more than just a Sunday environment of discipleship. This is why I think just coming to church, even, even, so this is kind of the thought, this is why I want us to be a deep church. When I, when I, they say deep church, often what I'm imagining is this moral minority. I want us to be the minority of Christians that really dig into who is Jesus, what does he want from us in this world, and are we willing to sacrifice to do it? Even if other Christians look at us like, what, what are y'all doing? We can just be like, we're doing what Jesus asked us to do. And perfectly, and I'm sure we're getting some stuff wrong, but we're not just going down the, the open path where everybody is. I mean, we're digging in. We're trying to be transformed from the inside out. We're trying to grow into these virtues, this virtuous life, this wise and blessed life that Jesus has called us to live. Even in a church like that, which I, I pray and hope and strive to, to be, that we are, you need more than just Sunday mornings. You need more than just some Christian music in your car. Because you're being discipled at all times. It's not a question of whether you want to be discipled. It's a question of how are you being discipled, which has more influence on you. The whole world is set up in such a way to form you into a certain type of person who has a certain type of opinions and 
and participates in relationships in a certain type of way. Economically, morally, this is what advertising is, right? I mean, and this is, this is happening in your life 24 hours a day in ways that are so subtle you might not really even be aware of it. Often the best type of discipleship is unconscious. You're not really thinking like, oh, I'm being shaped to think like this. But in fact, you are being think to shape like. So we can take the, the love your enemies, right, with the patriotism. Here's what I get from this all the time, right? It's just a no-brainer for us to be patriots. And to pick that, even if it means it's a tough situation when it comes to killing other Christians. And I go, here's why it's a no-brainer to you, though. It's because you've been discipled to be a good American. Because you grew up, and they taught you American history. And they taught you American heroes. And you live your whole life on an American calendar. And I'm not anti-American. I'm really not. A lot of people think I am. I'm, I'm really, really, really not. I could have moved. I haven't. don't want to. And trust me, I'm not an ungrateful person. I understand fully what America means, what it means to live in America. In fact, I think the older I get, the more proud I am and the more grateful I am to be in America. But this is why I've suggested at times, you know, we might think differently if we taught our kids church history as much as we taught them American history. And if we taught them about church heroes, like the martyrs and saints, as much as we taught them about American heroes, like the war heroes. And if we lived our lives on the church calendar, if you walk in into most churches in Sugarland today, I would bet you a large majority don't even realize there's a church calendar. There's a church calendar. There's an alternative way to live your whole year that the church has set up and used for thousands of years with its own holidays, with its own rhythms of life. This is called discipleship. Countries are very good at discipling you into being in support of the country, which again is not a bad thing. But I think if you were to approach Jesus and say, pick one, I don't think he has to think very long about that. I think Jesus says, you, you, you better support me before you support, before you support your country. You support your country as long as it doesn't interfere with what I have asked you to do and asked you to be. We're being discipled all the time. So I think if you took a group of kids and you started discipling them that way, 30 years from now, if I got up and said, love your enemies, I'd get a different response. Because they're going to know about all these people who gave up their lives for for strangers. They're going to learn about the global nature of Christianity and how we're all interconnected in so many different ways. They're going to learn about how transient nations really are, even though in the moment it feels permanent. The church is a much more permanent and full and real structure in the world because of community than any socio-political reality. The choice for us is 
Will we transform, will we shift into a life where 24-7, 365, we're being discipled in the right way? And so to do that, here's what we need. We need a community. More than just high on Sundays, although that's great, I like that. But we need people during the week that we're talking to and praying with. We need to have challenging discussions. I think the church needs people like me who take a hard line on love your enemies just to provoke some conversation and anger. We need to talk about it. I think we need to think deeply about our faith. Again, think about this. If you were to go into the average American church, and I've taught these average American kids, Christian kids, they're good Christian kids, right? This is not like bad kids. These are good Christian kids. These are the best Christian kids our churches are producing. They don't know a word like the incarnation, much less what it means or how important it is. They don't know words like Trinity beyond maybe a recognition of that word. They can't explain it to you or explain the importance of it. But you know what they know and are being taught? Very complex mathematical theories. And then they go to college, and during the week, they're learning some of the most advanced neuroscientifical truths that the world has ever known. And on Sunday, they're getting a three-point sermon from one verse taken out of context. Or during the week, they're learning some of the most advanced and complex economic theories. And then they're going to church and going to a Bible study where they just kind of throw opinions around. And you're telling me we can't, we can't spend time thinking about really complex discussions about the Incarnation and about the Trinity and about the Scriptures? That's just a choice we're making. And it's a choice Jesus says that we need to think hard about. It's a choice that matters. This narrow gate, easy gate, it's basically saying choices matter. Your actions matter. There's an eternal significance to these things, to how you respond to Jesus, to his salvation, and to his call to your life matters. So he says, enter by the narrow gate. And we remember, as I've, I've tried to, to point out all along the way throughout the, the series here, the best interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount is who? Jesus himself. How do you understand certain confusing things in the Sermon on the Mount? Look at Jesus. He is the embodiment of the Sermon on the Mount. Who forgives their enemies perfectly? Jesus. Who loves their enemies? Jesus. Who knows and has a relationship with the Father perfectly? Jesus. Who has no anger? Jesus. Who has no lust? Jesus. Right? He is the, who is blessed because he's persecuted. Who is blessed because he's a peacemaker. All of these things. This is Jesus. He's the embodiment of the Sermon on the Mount. When we get to the narrow gate and this hard path, it's Jesus that went through the narrow gate. It's Jesus that walked the hard path, and it's Jesus that found life, that won life, that offered it to us. This is not works righteousness in some sense that we're earning our salvation here. 
This is simply the path that happens after we enter the gate, which is the life that Jesus has won for us. To enter into that gate, though, and then do a 360 and walk on the easy path, I think Jesus is going to say, it's just all backwards. None of that makes sense, and it's not going to work. The path is, can't be separated from that gate. The end of that path is going to lead you to either life or destruction. We praise Jesus for his salvation. We praise him that he's done this things, these things for us. We pray, praise him that he put his obedience in our place. We have forgiveness of our sins. Because guess what? I'm going to fall and I'm going to scrape my knees and I'm not going to be this type of person all the time, probably most of the time. But I'm going to try and hopefully you're going to help me try. But I am going to be committed to it. I am going to do my best. And I'm going to try to surround myself by other people who are committed to it and who are doing their best. And so as we, we come to the table this morning, we realize that the, this path Jesus has called us to walk on is a path he's already walked on for us. And it's a path that he's poured out a spirit, his spirit, to help us walk. A path that he walks on with us. And it's a path that ends in life. True, rich, eternal life. So Jesus invites us to enter into this narrow gate. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the blessings of your teachings recorded for us in the scriptures. We thank you for um, time to worship and to study uh, I pray that we would be challenged by these challenging words. Um, you, you said these things as warnings and as challenges, and so it's not easy for us to understand it shouldn't be easy. It shouldn't be super comfortable. It should make us scream a little bit, make us think a little bit. I pray that you would reveal to us what path we're on, narrow one or the, the wide one, what our destination is, life or destruction. And then I pray that, that you'd give us the courage and the wisdom to be able to, to follow you, to see you as the one who has won victory over death, who stands ready to give eternal life, and that we would, without reservation or hesitation, follow you and throw our whole selves, minds, body, and soul into and becoming a disciple of yours. We thank you for all the gifts you've given us. We thank you because even without your spirit, we wouldn't even be able to hear and think about these things. All of life, even the ability to choose to follow you, is a gift. It's from your grace. And so we, we pray that you would bless us and keep us. We pray that you would challenge us. We pray that you would help us walk this road of discipleship. All of these things we pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.